Welcome back, America Morning Glory. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I know you've been listening to Kurt Schlichter, but I pre-recorded this because I wanted to continue the conversation with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, which we began last week, and his colleague, Dr. Paul Ray, who's a professor of of Western civilization and pretty much everything at Hillsdale and the author of a brand new book that is now out uh, on the second uh, Spartan War. It is called, in fact, I got to find the right note, uh, Dr. Ray. What's the name of the book? I want to make sure we it's get it right. It's called Sparta's Second Attic War. Ah, Sparta's Second Attic War is out now. Last week we began by talking about Thucydides and the whole scope of the war. This week we're going to pay attention to one particular character who I think is just the greatest rogue of history, even though his name is always impossible for me to pronounce, Alcibiades. Uh, Larry Arn, I want you to start off because we're doing this series to pass the baton uh, of the West forward. And two weeks ago, we were talking about Xenophon and Socrates. Here we have another student of Socrates who fits right into the war that we were discussing last week, uh, the Peloponnesian War. What do you think we need to know about him the most? Uh, well, one thing is he's one of the people who proves the importance of Socrates, because he was he with another guy who became one of Socrates' accusers unto death, were students of Socrates, and all of the great young men thought that there was some power in Socrates, and so lusting after becoming powerful, it's in Aristophanes that Socrates is accused of being able to make the unjust speech the more powerful, and. Alcibiades is a very, as a young man, very interested in that. What he wants is to rule. He wants everything unto himself. Uh, the most candid uh, criticism of Alcibiades in relation to Socrates is in Xenophon, another warrior commander, but not faithless in the way that Alcibiades was. And so here you see an example, and there are examples in the modern world too, of somebody who just longs for glory. And he will, he, he, he can't keep himself to a constant course because when his glory is interrupted in, in one place, he joins the other place. And he's shameless about that. And he does it multiple times. Uh, Dr. Ray, one of the most remarkable phenomenons in modern America is the triumph of Hamilton, the musical. Hamilton wrote, and I'm, I'm quoting from memory, uh, fame is the highest ambition of the noblest minds. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but. He wanted, in the terms of the musical, to take his shot because he wasn't going to miss it. And, and Alcibiades also seems to me to be someone, as Dr. Orange just said, glory was everything, no matter where he had to get it and no matter what he had to do to get it. Yeah. And look, he was a man who, on his shield, according to Plutarch, he had the emblem of Eros, of Cupid. Uh, and the way the Greeks used the word eros, and you can see this in Pericles' funeral oration, uh, and last week I mentioned to you uh, the description of the, of the uh, Athenian expedition to Sicily, when someone argued that you really was trying to dissuade them and said you really need more ships and more men, and eros fell upon the Athenians. Um, eros is both a sexual term and a political term among the Greeks. And Alcibiades, of course, knew that. And what Eros is for, what it points to, is the beautiful and the noble. Uh, and, and Alcibiades is absolutely consumed with the longing for that. Now, part of it is you've got to understand he was the ward of Pericles. 
His father died when Alcibiades was very young, four or five years old. And his, his father's best friend was Pericles. And Pericles reared him. So he grows up a wealthy Athenian uh, from a, 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 an aristocratic Athenian family um, watching Pericles function. And what he wants to do is surpass Pericles. Uh, he becomes a student of the Sophists in, in the early 420s uh, and then of Socrates. Uh, and he appears in, in dialogues like Plato's Alcibiades I, Alcibiades II, and Protagoras. And then later, uh, most important in Plato's Symposium. And Socrates tries to wean him away from this mad political ambition and point him to something that involves a greater ambition, which is to say philosophy, uh, the desire uh, to understand the whole of things. Um, and it seems to backfire. It only enhances the young man's ambition. It makes him think bigger rather than smaller. Dr. Arndt, has- I, I, I got to interrupt here to just ask you if you think this is by nature. That, that what we're talking about, this ambition, is there. You can't get rid of it for some people. It's just it is in their nature. Well, you have to you have to read Socrates' uh, grand student Aristotle about that. Uh, what he says is that we have proclivities. We have certain. We have some people have greater, and some uh, people have large, uh, lesser capacities of various kinds, and we have tendencies and inclinations. But we are responsible for those. And, you know, a lot of people sat in those rooms, a lot of brilliant young men, men, Plato above all, sat in those rooms and talked to Socrates for years, and they learned from him, and they changed their lives. And Alcibiades was plenty intelligent, and he heard all the same things, and he discarded them. And that is an act of his will. Yeah, Dr. Ray, I've, I've just got a logic complaint. You're both pronouncing this differently. And to people who have audio dyslexia like me, it just drives me crazy. That's why I end up train wrecking the name all the time. Uh, is that a common problem among people talking about Alcibiades? Well, I, I don't think so, but it's, it's a common problem uh, with Greek names generally. I think it's Alcibiades. I, I've never heard um, that other pronunciation of the name. All right, so I, I will tell you the lineage of my pronunciation. It comes from Harry Newman, a great teacher in Claremont, now deceased. And he said Alcibiades, and so we all learned to say it that way. All right. Uh-huh. So, so tell me whether you think it's of nature, uh, Dr. Ray. And can, uh, Larry says it's a tendency, it's an inclination. I don't think so. I mean, I'm not talking about Alcibiades here. I'm talking about the warriors that I have known. I am not among them. I don't think they could have ever been bought what they were. Maybe. Um, you know, Socrates' attempt was to, look, the eros is inborn. Socrates' attempt was to take this eros and redirect it to something even more noble and glorious than politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that worked with Plato. Uh, uh, it didn't work with Alcibiades. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that Alcibiades makes clear when he appears in Plato's Symposium is the only person who could make him feel shame 
was Socrates. Yeah. There was something godlike about Socrates that was beyond him, and it drove him stark raving mad. So I want to interject a distinction. I, I, I think, you know, like, for example, I was not way, made to be a catcher in the big leagues or a lineman in the NFL, and I regretted that for decades, right? But the point is, if I had become one of those things, what would be up to me was whether I became a morally good one or not. And so Alcibiades, Alcibiades was, uh, was very much made to be a leader. He had all the gifts of beauty and command and force and intellect. And he was, go- he was likely to do that, and it would have been hard for him to resist it. But the point is, did he become like he became instead of the way Xenophon became? Because Xenophon was disciplined and and corrected and elevated by his association with Socrates. And when we come back, we're going to have Dr. Ray, in a nutshell, tell us about this remarkable career. If you're not one for reading other than novels, you can go get Tides of War by Stephen Pressfield, which is a novelization of the life of this rogue. Uh, And we will have uh, Dr. Ray present. It is one of the most remarkable up, down, up, down, ultimately down and out careers that you'll ever come across. Is it fair to say, Dr. Ray, in our 30-second, he's the most colorful character in this period? Yes, I think without a doubt. There are rivals, Brasidas, Lysander, Pericles, and so forth, but there's nobody quite like Alcibiades. Do you agree with that, Dr. Arden? Yeah, this guy's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this movie, Tides of War, this book, Tides of War, captures it, but I've often asked Pressfield why it never made a movie. I think it's too complicated. We'll tell you why after the break. Alcibiades comes forward like a lion and works for everybody. Basically, if you can imagine, well, an almost Trumpian disregard for previous positions. Uh, we've uh, We've got a character and a forerunner of that. Uh, with Alcibiades. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Go and join. Get the Imprimus Sentium Monthly. Watch their online courses and come right back on this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. I've come back uh, from vacation just to talk to Professor Paul Ray, Dr. Ray is a a professor of politics at Hillsdale and the author of extraordinary number of wonderful books, including most recently Sparta's Second Attic War, The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta, which just came out. Uh, And, of course, President Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College joins us almost every week. Uh, Dr. Ray, can you give us the thumbnail of, of his life? Not Plutarch detail, but just why is he the rogue's rogue and the warrior's warrior? Well, he's he's he comes from a wealthy family. Uh, he's reared in the shadow of Pericles. He is taught rhetoric by the sophist. Uh, he is uh, induced to think very big by Socrates, who recognizes his talent. And then he emerges on the scene at a, you know when he's about thirty years old. And uh, he very nearly completes the Periclean project of defeating Sparta. The only way to defeat Sparta is to organize a coalition in the Peloponnesus of land powers so that you, you, you have the manpower in order to best the Spartans on their own, in their own element, which is on land. And in 419... 
Alcibiades manages to bring the traditional enemy of Sparta, Argos, into an alliance and two of Sparta's disaffected allies, Mantinea uh, and Elis. Uh, into this coalition, and it leads to a battle in 418 at Mantinea, and if the Spartans had lost that battle, that would have been the end for Sparta. Uh, they don't lose it, but it's a very close-run thing. Um, so he's, he's a brilliant strategist and tactician. Uh, his next move uh, is for his own glory, but not for the interests of Athens, and this is the problem with the man. Uh, uh, he is not really a lover of the city. He is a lover of his own glory. And that's the Sicilian expedition. Yep. Now, his his notion is to send 60 ships. They end up sending 100 because the man who opposes the expedition uh, says uh, 60 ships is not enough. And he thinks that will dissuade the Athenians. Uh, and it's a high-risk operation. Uh, with small gain uh, for Athens. And, of course, Sparta is waiting to pounce. Uh, and Alcibiades is in his personal life so dissolute that people don't trust, don't trust him, and there are scandals on the eve of the departure for Sicily, and they engulf him. And the next thing you know, he's ending up at Sparta, uh, and he provides the Spartans with the strategy that enables them to defeat Athens. In the Peloponnesian War, they re-enter the war in alliance with Persia, and behind that, the brains behind it is Alcibiades, but he can't control himself, so he beds the wife of the Spartan king, which leads to a little bit of, dis of um, a dislike of him on the part of that Spartan king, and the next thing you know, he's got to flee the Spartans, and he goes to the, uh, uh, the, the Persians uh, and allies himself with Tissaphernes, uh, the, the Persian satrap, uh, and he provides him with a strategy, play the Spartans and the Athenians off against one another, uh, and it doesn't quite work uh, in the end because um, uh, Cyrus of Persia, the second son of the Persian king, comes down and he's looking for an army so that he can defeat his older brother and take the Persian kingship. And so he makes a very firm alliance with the Spartans. Alcibiades switches. Uh, Again. This even <laughs> happens back to the Athenians. He leads them to some victories, um, but uh, he makes a blunder and they exile him again. It's just amazing. It, it, it is turn after turn. Uh, 30 seconds, Dr. Arn. Can your students keep it straight without, you know, a, a scorecard? Well, if you start out with the information that it's going to be dizzying, then you sort of can. Yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's no major power in the great Peloponnesian War that Alphabiades didn't, to, to whom Alphabiades didn't lend decisive help. When I come back, I'm going to ask you about if there's a counterpart. I mean, is there anybody who did this in a, in a three-power contest in the rest of history who played every side against the others at one time or another and at the top and with effectiveness as Alcibiades. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues right after this on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, is underway. Thanks to Kurt Schlichter for sitting in for me this week. But I came back for this hour so that you could hear the continuation of last week's conversation 
with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu, and Dr. Paul Ray, his colleague there, has been teaching history for a very long and, and very productive career. His brand new book uh, is out this week at the um, uh, uh, Yale University Press, Sparta's Second Attic War, available at Amazon. Uh, gentlemen, uh, is there a counterpart to Alcibiades? As we just heard, if people are just tuning in, he grew up and was raised in Athens with a student, uh, the ward of Pericles, a student of Socrates, becomes a great warrior for Athens, blows up the uh, expedition to Syracuse, then goes over to the Spartans and leads the Spartans after leading them to some victories and goes over to the Persians, does well there, but then back in Athens and they take him back, Dr. Ray. We'll talk about what he did for the Athenians at the end, but is there anyone else in your mind who compares with this? Well, I, th- I thought of one person, which just shows the extremity of Alphabiades. Uh, general Paulus was the German general at the Battle of Stalingrad, the one who kept pleading to Hitler to let them retreat or reinforce him, which Hitler couldn't do. And he was captured by the Red Army, and he became a senior commander in the East German or Communist Army for the rest of his active life. So he, was, he, he came out of all that pretty well. But that's nothing compared to... No, it isn't. <laughs> that's, that's inevitable, right? You know, if you're going to be taken by the Soviets, it's either get shot in the back of the head or go to work for them. Uh, it, it's, Dr. Ray, is there anyone remotely like this? Not really. Um, I can tell you that uh, there was a novel written in French after World War One, and I've forgotten the name of the author, but he was a famous novelist. And uh, it, it, it's... It, the, the the main British figure in the novel is Churchill under a different name, uh, and he's referred to as Alcibiades with hats. Huh. Um, uh, now, that's not the character of Churchill, but it tells you something perhaps about Churchill's charm. Well, tell me uh, something about he had the, some of the qualities. T- tell uh, me about how the Athenians forgive him, because to me, this is the great puzzle. How do you take yeah. a traitor back? Aristophanes, you know, someone. Uh, Aristophanes has a, has a play called The Frogs, and and uh, the, the the Dionysus goes down to Hades because all the great tragedians have died, and he wants to bring Euripides back, and he meets Sophocles and Aeschylus, and he's trying to pick among them, and and, and finally, uh, and he asks them, what should we do with Alcibiades? And Aeschylus says, or Euripides in the play says they, about the Athenians, they love him, they hate him, they can't do without him. Huh. Uh, Aeschylus says, don't have a lion born in your city, but if you do, obey him. Uh, so there's this, they're charmed by him, they're drawn into his eros, uh, and they fear him because there's a kind of tyrannical potential to the man. Um, you know, some years ago, when I was trying to, thinking about contemporary politics, the person I would have compared with him was Bill Clinton. Like uh, Alcibiades, a great seducer, both of women and of uh, uh, the public. Uh, but also someone I gather, when you met him, he blew you out of the room. Um, uh, simply very, very impressive. But again, I, I can't imagine him flipping to uh, another country and taking over their their um, 
their policy and and directing them. And Alcibiades does it with three different groups: the Athenians, the Spartans, and and then the the Persian satrapy in in Lydia and in, in Western Anatolia. There's nobody like him in human history. Doctor, and what is the Churchill quote? It, it it takes something to rat, but it really is very difficult to rewrat. Yeah, 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 rewrat. That's it. Uh, uh, that's right. It's very hard to rat. It's much more difficult to re-rat. When he crossed the line, he would change parties. But that's changing parties in, in the service of the same crown. It's not changing countries. Yeah, but, you know, the, the cause is a little the same. Uh, when Churchill changed parties the first time and the second time, he brought a lot of votes with him. And uh, what Alcibiades brought with him was a reputation for ability to lead in war and win victories. And all of those countries were sorely pressed when he joined them. So, Dr. Ray, what did he do for the Athenians when he came back the last time? Well, when he came back the last time, they were in deep trouble. There's this alliance between the Spartans and the Persians. And what he's trying to do is to break that alliance. Uh, and to do that, he, he's got to win some victories, and he does. Uh, and it, it, he's a man of strategic vision. Uh, he's not a man of loyalty, but he's a man of strategic vision, so he can see how things can be done. Um, uh, and uh, also, he's a master of ta tactics. So one of the things he does at the Battle of Sisychus in 410 is he annihilates the Persian fleet. I mean, there's nothing left. I mean, not the Persian fleet, the Spartan fleet. There's nothing left. The problem he faces is if the Persians provide the money, they can build a new fleet. And the war can be begun again. This happens over and over in this in this in the, in this period after the Sicilian expedition. I'm going to write about this in Sparta's Third Attic War, which I expect to start this summer. The the um, and Alcibiades will will be a significant figure in that. Um, but you know he he runs out of options uh, because of of the solidity because of Cyrus of the Spartan-Persian alliance. Um, and he dies uh, in 404, uh, and he's on his way to the great king of Persia uh, in order to uh, turn him against the Spartans. Uh, wow. And it's a new king at this time. And uh, he wants to warn him that his younger brother Cyrus is working with the Spartans to build uh, an army that will allow him to become great king. And, of course, that's the army of the 10,000 uh, that Xenophon was a member of. And so is there any account of how he and Xenophon got along, Dr. Arn? Well, uh, yeah, they knew each other. Uh, they didn't. As Xenophon you know, records in his memorabilia of Socrates that he doesn't have any respect for Alcibiades. And uh, Alcibiades. And... Um, um, so, uh, so yeah, I, th you know, they were very different people, right? And it's interesting. Xenophon is the one. If you read Xenophon's memorabilia of Socrates, uh, it it's it tracks very well with the last three Platonic dialogues that describe the death, the prosecution and ex and conviction and death, the execution of Socrates. But uh, uh, Xenophon's is more direct and more judgments that a public man would make. Uh, 
And so this, his judgment on Alcibiades is that this is a bad man, right? So if we, if we could summon Socrates from the grave and he looks at his students, Alcibiades, Plato, and Xenophon, what would he say of them and would he rank, I mean, would he be proud of them all or would he disown the rogue? Well, in the symposium, uh, Alcibiades tries to seduce Socrates. And uh, that's one of his tools. And uh, uh, men and women. And uh, Socrates won't have it because it's low and corrupt, that, that kind of eros. And Socrates was a great cultivator of eros, if that means love of knowing. And so that was the, yeah, so I don't think that uh, Socrates was under any delusions about Alcibiades. Uh, and, you know, he, and, and remember also, he's, we only know about Socrates from these people who knew him well and who wrote about him. And it's a great gift that three of them were of the first rank, uh, the Aristophanes and well, Plato above all and Aristophanes and Xenophon. And so you get this tremendous picture of this man, but the man was also not given to praising himself, and his judgments about people are always serious. He's not given to say to people, you're the wisest man I ever met, except ironically. Well, is there, is there a, uh, a prejudice in Plato's dialogue against his uh, colleague and rival uh, that, that we ought to account for? Well, there are two dialogues named after Alcibiades, and uh, see, I'm adjusting now, and uh, uh, and they, you know, they are very revealing, right? And they do not, you know, he, he's he, he's one of the most important men who ever lived, and one of the most talented men who ever lived. He just wasn't a very good man, and you know, in in the modern age, who knows? He might have been Stalin or Hitler. Um, you know, and those, those were people who were extremely good at power and who attempted, now armed with modern science, uh, to have everything subordinated to them. And uh, that was the passion, I think. The Hamilton quote is, uh, what is it, uh, honor is the ruling passion of the noblest minds? Yes. Uh, and, uh, and Alcibiades had that passion, and it ran away with him. Uh, Dr. Ray, uh, Socrates' judgment on his pupils? Well, uh, look, Alcibiades, the reason, look, why, why does Plato have all these dialogues about Alcibiades? I think the, the reason is, for Plato and probably for Socrates too, Alcibiades is a human type that, that if you're thinking seriously about politics, you have to get your mind around. Um, maybe no one has come along with all of the talents of Alcibiades, but people have come along who are extraordinarily talented. And that talent is an opportunity and a danger at the same time. Last segment uh, coming up is what happened to Athens or where did Alexander come from? Don't go anywhere, America. We'll talk about how this individual and the fall of Athens cleared them the destruction of actually Greece cleared the way for the rise of another. Don't go anywhere. 
We'll come back with the last segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue right after this. Coming right back with more of the Hillsdale Dialogue with Larry Arnn and Paul Ray after this. Welcome back, America. If you followed the Hillsdale Dialogue of these last three weeks, we've been talking about Persia and Greece. But after them comes another. After Greece destroys itself, it saves itself from Persia. It destroys itself in the Peloponnesian War uh, through the agency of many people, despite the... uh, the great benefits bestowed on it by having Socrates in it. Dr. Ray, what happens to Greece? Well, what happens is, uh, thanks to the Spartan-Persian alliance, which Alcibiades has a lot to do with, uh, Athens is defeated. Uh, Her empire is disbanded. The Spartans try to take it over. And the Athenians had warned the Spartans on the eve of the Peloponnesian War that they really couldn't do what Athens had done. And that warning turns out to be true. Uh, One of the reasons is the Spartans lacked the manpower. There's probably no more than 4,000 or even 2,000 of them at at the end of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, Their old policy of isolationism really did make sense for them. Uh, though Persia became a challenge and then Athens became a challenge. Nonetheless, the policy of empire, which is what they choose in the wake of uh, of the Peloponnesian War, is a disaster. And eventually it leads to their defeat. Um, uh, and there's a second battle of Mantinea, which they, they, they do not it, – it does not result in the kind of victory that the first battle of Mantinea resulted in. Before that, there's a battle of Leuctra, uh, and uh, the, the Spartan power depends upon controlling Messenia across Mount Tigetus on the other side, where the whole population is – or almost all of it has been turned into helots, and they lose that. And Sparta is never a force again. Athens is not the force, again, it's a force, but not in, say, Demosthenes' day, the force that it had once been. And Thebes, which is the city responsible for the destruction of Spartan power in the 4th century, uh, in 371 B.C., uh, and again at at the Second Battle of Mantinea in 362 B.C., can't substitute for either Sparta or Athens. And that means... Greece is divided, and Philip of Macedon can succeed where Xerxes of Persia had failed. And uh, down and, comes Philip, Dr. Arne, and with him comes his son. And history changes because the, the, the Greeks couldn't hold it together. I guess, as you said at the beginning of these two hours last week, history is complete. We can see it. They would have been better off figuring it out, Sparta and Athens. You, you know, you, you, it's a... The Thucydides tells a tragedy, right? Yeah. Great, a great power, great powers in motion, and they destroyed each other and themselves. And that means that Pericles and uh, and Alcibiades and the the rulers of Sparta after they conquered Athens, they all did things that undid their cities. And it's not long before the Persians are reduced. And so this is a, you know, one of the reasons this period of time is so instructive is that the war, the world tore itself apart. 
Can, can I end on a personal note, Dr. Ray? How did you fall into this period? I mean, you have fell into it and you have mastered it and you have produced scholarship and popular books about How did it capture you? Well, what, what happened was um, I started out to be a classicist uh, at Cornell in 1967, and I discovered I'd have to spend all my time learning the languages. So I turned away from that to history more generally. And then I transferred to Yale in 1969, and I did history uh, again, um, and and sort of cultural intellectual history of the sort that ended up in Republic's Ancient Modern, my book on Montesquieu and so forth. Um, But I got a Rhodes Scholarship, and I thought, gosh, I could really do the the classical side of things. So um, that's what I decided to do. And I, second term of my senior year, I, I took a tutorial to bring my Greek up to snuff. And I went off to Oxford and I studied these things, um, including the Peloponnesian War and Sparta and so forth. And I came back to Yale to do German history because the Germans were obsessed with the Greeks. And I thought I could I would have the wherewithal to make sense of the German obsession with the Greeks. And in those days, um, the the uh, everybody doing German history was doing social history, and I would have been pushed into doing the history of a corporation in Germany. And I thought, uh, uh-uh. uh. So I switched back to classical history and worked with Donald Kagan. Did a PhD um, on the end of the Peloponnesian War called Lysander, who was a Spartan leader and the Spartan settlement. You know, and then I wandered back again and did Republic's Ancient Modern and uh, a book um, uh, on uh, uh, the the English Civil War and then a book on Montesquieu and then Soft Despotism, Democracy's Drift. And then Yale University Press bribed me um, with an advance to do a book called The Spartan Way of War. And now there are four volumes of that. And that is why, if you are listening, your son or daughter ought to go to Hillsdale College. That is why. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Paul Ray, thanks to you both. We'll be back talking about Alexander next week. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. All of the dialogues last week, the week before, collected at you for hillsdale.com.